Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and the treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and it is Wednesday the 22nd of April. How are we all? Who In the studio we have Rob. Idwin. And Jess. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> How, how are you? <laughs> good. I'm good. I've been watching uh, lots of, lots of um, David Attenborough Ooh. docos, actually. I'm really getting into that, so I'm, I'm good, actually. This week's been great. It's nice to really... feel like reconnected to nature again. Mm. Yeah, I think, that was, I think that's why I've enjoyed it so much, to be honest, because I have been missing that element in life. <laughs> talking well, about... Was... Oh, sorry, you go. Um, something I found this week, I was listening to a podcast, and... It was about a person talking about like empty cities. And the thing that really got me was just like the sounds of things that I miss, like mm. the sound of the tram just accelerating and breaking. And I heard it and I got strangely emotional. I'm like, I haven't heard like this like comforting sound in a very long time. Mm. I don't know. It's kind of like this like interesting, like we have these sounds like urban backtrack that kind of just like fade out in everyday life. But it's like mm. when they're actually stripped away, I don't know. I felt quite uneasy. That and sense of familiarity, that sense of familiarity isn't, is just lost when um, exactly. it's not even, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I was speaking with my housemate and I, like every morning I like uh, grind my coffee beans fresh. And so it has like, there's a grinder noise. And she says, she said to me the other day, like, Oh, this, um, that sound is like the sound of home to me because it's something that you do every morning, like three times a day, whatever. And it's just really interesting. Like the, the importance of like sounds to make you mm. feel comfortable. I don't know. That's just something I kind of reflected. It's on. a nice thought. We've yeah. been we've been actually enjoying COVID nineteen, uh, the lack of traffic near our house because we've noticed <laughs> that there's just suddenly just silence where there used to be like <laughs> there's that faint humdrum of like traffic in the background. So there's been like a lack of that and an increase. We've noticed like an actual increase of bird noises. So it's been interesting to see like you know you're saying what you miss pre crisis, but like during this crisis, there's been quite a lot of like space like noise, like mental space because of the lack of noise and the lack of like Did pollution you, noises. I have a question. Did you just notice that out of the blue one day straight away or was it sort of like a build-up? Like, it's been wow. a build-up. It's been a build-up because we've, so. we've been spending more time in the garden and I suppose more time like sitting out enjoying the weirdly warm weather that we've been having. <laughs> um, and, yeah, it's just been like slowly realising that there's not that constant uh, driving, you know, driving noise and car noise in the background. You're right. It's, it's something that's like slowly built up, but I think I'm really valuing it at the moment. It's really, yeah, really serene. Mm. <laughs> so nice. Yeah. How about you? That also, Jess. I was going to touch on um getting in contact with like you know David Attenborough media and stuff like that. Yes. I've been I've revisited like one of my favorite media series, my may favorite like media series recently, and I'm just getting so much joy from it. Like there's just something to be said for like connecting in with like your I don't know your show your thing it's just oh I love it like I just completely it just it's one of those things where I just I don't know whether his it's his voice 
that does that or it's the actual content. Look, it is the content, but it's just something about da- – I've watched other series, mini-series of similar nature documentaries and I love them all, but just David Attenborough is something else when I just – I think it's like when I need that time to just zone out, chill out, learn things, um, <laughs> happy things. I like learning. No, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I go to David Attenborough, so – I think that's been a great, a very great idea of mine this week. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fantastic. And with the idea of like learning things, do we have any interesting facts this week? Not on my end. Just a tumble. It's not really a, it's not really a fact, but it's sort of like something that's happening that I thought was kind of a little bit strange. But in LA, I just read an article about how they're actually filling the skate parks, which is like a massive culture in LA. They're filling the skate parks with sand to to stop people from skating at the moment. So like pouring massive sand piles into like obviously very deep skate parks. So that was my... What an interesting image, honestly. Yes, that's what really got me. Obviously that that image brought me to that article. So It's like desertification within the cities. Mm. Yeah, interesting. How about you, Iwin? Um, unfortunately, I don't really have a fun fact as of this week. <laughs> I'm just trying to rack my brains. <laughs> oh, I have a fun gardening fact. Um, yes, yes. Garden snails can be stopped from eating your plants through cracking up eggshells and placing them around. Have I told you this before? Cracking up oh. eggshells and placing them around... Um, your desired plant can basically stop snails or, or, or work as a deterrent as they kind of, they get caught on the sharp edges and they kind of back off. Oh, that's so strange. I knew about the salt thing, but I didn't know about the, the egg. Oh, wow. Cool. There you go. I will there you try go. that. However, I have, to, I have to say it has to be a combination of things because currently I'm trying to save a broccoli plant and I've had to put up like wire netting as well to try and keep it safe. <laughs> They're aggressive. Oh, the broccoli. <laughs> broccoli. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Right. It's like a uh, like a time lapse video of a snail like getting towards the eggshell, then retreating away and trying to get around. I reckon that would be like quite a popular pastime. For many people. I I was I, I I went out there to have a look to check on the status of the broccoli. There were like twenty five snails. I counted them. Twenty five snails around this one broccoli bush, and I'm like, that's vicious. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, so yes, eggshells and broccoli, that's my, my contribution to the fact. The fact no, I like that. That's a useful fact. Yes. Um, there is a new trend emerging of like, because there's no sports anymore, people are doing marble racing. So like you go for different color marbles as they race down different tracks, um, which is like it's actually really entertaining because like the commentator will be like, uh, the bluey marble is overtaking the ready marble and like we'll make this whole commentary about the marbles overtaking each other. <laughs> Um, and it's actually as entertaining as sport, which I find really fascinating. Um, you could almost do the same with the snails, like which snail's going to get to the to the broccoli plant over time. Yeah. It, could be, it could be a new form of entertainment. We could try it. Yeah. Absolutely. And, I mean, coming up on today's entertainment or today's show, that was a very crappy segue, but whatever. Um, we've got a few interviews. So, Rob, what's your interview? Your interview is COVID-19 related. Am I correct? Yes. So I'll be speaking with Professor David Sanderson, who is going to be speaking about the impacts of COVID-19, particularly within slum communities in Africa, um, and about how communities are preparing and actually how this opportunity of COVID-19 might be an opportunity to actually reconsider how a lot of basic necessities are met within slums. So it should be quite an interesting conversation. And after that, we should be having an interview with Joel, who comes from Legal Aid Victoria. 
uh, you guys might know Legal Aid. It's a legal service that usually works with people who might not necessarily have the resources or legal experience. Uh, and they work with a wide array of customers and legal issues. But the one they're focusing on today is the current homelessness inquiry that is facing the Victorian government right now. So Legal Aid has just submitted a list of recommendations of what needs to be done to help uh, people who are facing housing insecurity and homelessness situations. And yeah, we'll be talking to Joel about like what those recommendations are and why we need to move more towards preventative than crisis solutions because currently we're in this crisis. So yeah, that'll be interesting. Great. Well, before then, we've got some alternative news. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah, boom. Nitty-gritty, Wednesday breakfast on 3CR. Now we're getting into alternative news. We'll begin alternative news with a piece from the New York Times on super plants doing good for the environment. Uh, new research in phytomediation, which is the process of using plants to clean up toxic soil or water, has recently been uncovered. Poplar plants in areas close to San Francisco are taking in 50 gallons of toxic water a day and breaking it down into byproducts of carbon dioxide and chloride. This new technology of phytomediations has come from the identification of microbes that lay in poplars. Not only do these microbes help clean the environment and eradicate toxic waste, but they also enable poplars to survive. The plants act as vacuums, sacking up the waste, while also simultaneously not letting the process endanger their survival. As well as areas around San Francisco, 
Texas, Kentucky, New York, and the Midwest are also beginning to use phytomediation. This method could be useful and a very green biotechnology with a wide application spectrum in the very near future. This will have to be done once scientists are able to create more efficient techniques at keeping more varieties of plants, other than poplars, healthy when using microbes for the purpose of phytomediation. This technique can begin to begin its widespread use after that little hiccup has been <laughs> researched properly. Um, on to the next piece of alternative news. Artificial intelligence is getting bigger and bigger, quite literally every day. Another article in the New York Times talks about the possibilities for good that AI technology can have on endangered oceanic species, such as the endangered North Atlantic whale. These whales have become more endangered due to warming temperatures, where researchers found that these whales moving north from the traditional habitat of the Gulf of Maine to the Gulf of St. Lawrence in Canada. Coinciding with this shift is an unusual mortality event where 21 whales have died in Canada and nine in the US since 2017. And these, this is just an extremely unusual mortality event in the last decade. To protect the whales, scientists need to know more about where they are. They're taking data from satellites, sonar, radar, human sightings and ocean currents, and are then training a machine learning algorithm to create a probability model of where these whales could be. With such information, domestic and international authorities could make decisions about shipping lanes and speeds and fishing more quickly, helping them to better protect the whales. Similarly, many fish populations are moving or are overfished or nearing it, and much of this fishing is done illegally. In an effort to clamp down on illegal activity and keep populations at healthy levels in the ocean, Google has also helped start Global Fishing Watch, an organisation that monitors fishing around the world by collecting and making vessels, positions and activities public. Other applications are used in ocean chemistry and pollution for tasks like monitoring ocean plastic. Using sensors similar to those that monitor air quality in the International Space Station, an AI company named Draper is now collecting data on the properties of microplastics found in the ocean. This is at the request of the EPA, the Environment, uh, Environmental Protection Agency. From that information, they produce a fingerprint of specific chemicals and use that fingerprint to train the algorithm to identify different types of plastic. Machine learning has not yet been widely used in assessing other issues in ocean chemistry, like ocean acidification, deoxygenation or nitrate concentrations, but these could be the future of these AI projects. Right. Thanks, Jess. Uh, continuing kind of on the same environmental theme, uh, there's been some new modelling that has found that if sea level rise is not curbed at its current rate, then flooding events that currently occur once in a lifetime within America, so that means once in 50 years, could actually become a daily occurrence along the majority of the US coastline. And so researchers from the US government, the University of Illinois and the University of Hawaii have found that by the end of the century, these daily occurrences would occur across 90% of the coastal locations that they surveyed, with Miami, New Orleans and Hawaii particularly affected. And within just 30 years, the number of coastal locations affected is expected to be 70% of those same surveyed locations. And so these processes will also be then further exacerbated by beach and cliff erosion. And as such, this really jeopardises the habitability of these areas, uh, essentially rendering these cities unlivable and costly to live within likely to induce multi-billion dollar damages. And so what I find quite interesting about this story is that we're sort of constantly talking about how the 21st century is the urbanised century. 
And when we're thinking about designing and planning for a growth, we don't actually really consider growth in population associated from people moving from, say, Miami to Los Angeles due to flooding. Rather, we only really think about sort of natural city growth or sort of typical migration trends and not accounting for these sort of more internal movements due to cities essentially becoming unlivable. And so as a result, this results in sort of inaccurate forecasts about the appropriate uh, investment into schools, hospital, transport, and so on. And so as a result, these forecast numbers of buildings actually would be much higher if we're expecting to see more people potentially uh, relocate or entire cities being relocated due to sea level rise. And so this kind of reemphasizes the point that we might think that these issues are very separate from us. Perhaps we're not in an area that has sea level rise. But actually, if you are within one of those areas, there's a chance that people might start to move towards your city and actually placing greater strain on your existing infrastructure. And that actually affects our livability too. So just really emphasizing the, the point of everyone's in this together, regardless of where you actually are geographically, there will be flow on effects from that. But yeah, that's my alternative news for this week. Thanks, Rob. And I like, I was reading, um, I'll find the name of the author. Sorry, I'll find the name of the author of the book, but, um, it's one of those big climate change books and talking about how it's going to shift the way we live. And it's making exactly the same point. It's saying we live under this weird illusion that people in cities are going to be okay. And it's, you know, if you move inland, it's going to be the sea, you know, the, the coast of what's going to be the most affected. But it's like, no, no, no. Climate change and these effects will be seen everywhere and it's going to be pushing, putting strain on basically everyone. Um, my piece of alternative news is a little bit different. It's actually an online story from this week. Uh, what it centers around is a Facebook group. So for anyone who is not on social media site, uh, Facebook offers the ability to create groups where users can kind of come together and post around a common theme. So this one was the Melbourne Guys Pals Facebook group. Uh, it was for guys and men within the region of Melbourne who wanted to get online and maybe interact. Now, it was called Melbourne Guys Pals. It's based off this Melbourne Girls Pals, I believe. Is it Melbourne Girls? Melbourne Gal Pals, I'm pretty sure. Melbourne Gal Pals, yeah. which has been a, a bit of an institution for a while. The Facebook girl, the, the, the Melbourne Girls group uh, do things like they swap recipes, fashion, tips and tricks, and literally politics, like anything. anything. Yeah, anything under the sun. Um, but this Melbourne Guys Pals group was set up on Wednesday and was shut down two days later due to the amount of um, misogynistic language that was posted, including things such as revenge porn and direct references towards, um, like, young women and even, like, ch a child porn at times. So absolutely horrible stuff. Um, it was taken down quite fast. It was... um censored quite quickly by Facebook due to the amount of backlash it got after a user actually got into the group and then like put posted its messages to say, hey, hey, this is what's going on in the Melbourne Guys Pals because it is uh, a private group. And it was it's a really interesting case because it's brought up a whole bunch of questions for people. So, for example, the question of to what extent our online social media platforms should censor information as well as the idea of, you know, profit um the amount of people who hold these i think a lot of people were surprised by the amount of people who hold these what were really really misogynistic and really violent phrases against women so a lot of it was very scary for a lot of young girls who saw guys around melbourne sharing these extreme views uh, jess you 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 also saw the story they were quite yeah. intense views 
Yeah, my young, I am not a part of that group, and I, I think I was maybe in, t- in when I was in high school, you know, got mm. on that bandwagon. Um, I did leave that group, so I'm not actually sure what happened on there, but from articles and my younger sister telling me about it, um, I think girls were frightened. It wasn't like, oh, like these, like, guys, you know, like, then it wasn't like an anger, it was genuine it was a fright. It was scary, mm. scary stuff that's happening. I think it's just a reoccurring pattern since um, the private schools of Melbourne also being filmed on trains. Spotlighted, yeah. Slandering, yeah, yeah, and all of that sort of thing that happened at the end and beginning of this year with um, mm. that misogynist sort of language also reoccurring. And it's, I it's think re- it's... Oh. No, you go. <laughs> I was going to say, it, it's really interesting because, as you said, uh, men on the platform actually advocated for sexual harassment and sexual assault. Yeah. Uh, there was the sharing and, I mean, crime of sharing um, explicit photos. And that's um, bad enough, you know. That, but it's Absolutely. That's... But what's more surprising for me is one of my friends actually posted about it, and within her post she sent the link to basically this guy's pals group and all the material that had been deemed explicit and offensive. Mm-hmm. And she used the word filth within her comment, you know, this stuff is filth. Facebook actually took down her comment due to the filth faster than it responded to the Melbourne boys thing, which kind of um, reflects a larger commentary going around, around censorship and social media platforms, which is very dependent on what is the most sensational or algorithmically popular rather than, let's say, back to a baseline morality or such a thing. The content, the actual explicit content. So um, I think just acknowledging the story is really important for any people who did come across the story, as, as you said, it scared a lot of women. And I think it was really important that one, it was taken down. Uh, but two, the story continues to be monitored because of course, within being taken down a day later, there's been another group established with just as vitriolic um, comments and suggestions and spreading. So it just reminds us to keep aware of the groups that are, uh, that are on our social media platforms and also our capacity to take them down and also monitor them. Exactly. Yeah. There's, I think there's a big issue of that monitoring and algorithms as well as censorship. Mm. It's I think that's a big problem for a lot of social media platforms to keep our communities safe. And with that, we'll head into some community service announcements. We'll have a song and then we might jump into Rob's interview. So, here you are. Too foreign for home. Too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma umebinyo. Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. Six years I've been in desert. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The bigger the reason, the bigger the calling. 
make your commitment and watch things like And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming. Um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like, it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. Indigenous people, yeah, wanna 
You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and up next we have an interview with David Sanson, who will be speaking about the impact of coronavirus in many of Africa's informal settlements. David has over 25 years' experience working across the world in development and emergency scenarios. He has particular expertise in urban disaster resilience and humanitarian aid, as well as emergency house support for disadvantaged communities. He is also the inaugural Judith Nelson Chair at UNSW. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very nice to be on it. So, so far, all the coverage regarding COVID-19 has been quite heavily focused on developed nations. However, the, the public awareness of the challenges that slums are facing has been much less covered in the media. So to kind of place it all in perspective, what is the scale of the challenge that's being faced inside Africa's slums at the moment? Well, I mean, obviously, this is a global phenomenon uh, affecting every part of the world and nobody's going to come off better from this and so this is in, in no ways to downplay what's happening you know in, in wealthier countries who are much more equipped but since you mentioned low-income settlements in southern africa today's news is there are about 20,000 cases of which have been about a thousand deaths in, in about 51 of the 54 countries but of course that's moving very quickly but the world health organization has warned that in a few months' time, there may be as many as 10 million cases. Mm. Uh, and another UN bid is talking about 300,000 Africans may die and about 30 pushed into poverty. And as we know, it's some of the poorest parts of the world are in sub-Saharan Africa, especially in low-income settlements where houses are cramped closely together, people share services. There are, what is it, something like um, 53 million people living in low-income settlements in Southern Africa, and that number is going to go up. So it's, it's not a good situation. And so, so far, how are slum communities and governments starting to respond and adapt to coronavirus? 
Yeah, I mean, this is not like it's a surprise to anybody. Uh, these are already terrible conditions, and certainly in um, emergencies around the world throughout history, really, those most vulnerable and the poorest are worst affected. A uh, number of countries have taken measures. South Africa, which is the wealthiest country by a by a long way in sub-Saharan Africa, that said, there are still high levels of poverty there, has enacted quite a strong clampdown, a three-week lockdown, stopping people moving around, um, and has done all kinds of testings. But South Africa is very wealthy. Uh, and other countries that are already dirt poor and are very poor, or riven by conflict, whatever it might be, are going to really struggle. It's um, it's an apocalyptic image, and I'm no pessimist. But uh, when you get head of the Africa's Centre for Disaster, Disease Control saying this is an existential threat to the continent, you have to listen to that. I guess the other issue that's there is that many of the directions that we're giving to citizens in developed countries are simply not possible in many informal settlements and slums, notably the idea to sort of shelter in place or maintain high levels of hygiene and hand washing. However, how are governments or aid agencies maybe using this as an opportunity to maybe thinking about rolling out these essential services regardless of coronavirus or not? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you have to ask why has it not happened already? Um, <laughs> urbanization around the world is super fast. It's, 1.4 million people a week, it's beyond imagination. And the fastest growing parts of the world are sub-Saharan Africa and parts of Asia, Southeast Asia in particular. I want to say, because people don't care, and I'm sorry to say, I think there is a lot of that to this. This would have been different and changed otherwise. That said, uh, there are aid agencies that work in these areas. It's a small number who get small amounts of funding. It's hard to think much more is going to happen, although there has been a call for $100 billion of funding to safeguard. And, uh, a tragedy is that Africa continues to suffer from uh, being ignored. And it's not the role of aid to save Africa. No one's suggesting that. That, that. that was never the case. And some of the highest um, uh, GDP growths around the world have happened in Africa. Ethiopia is a spectacular success story. The issue is distribution and governance and the way things are managed and the way people care and what they do. Uh, will it be uh, an impetus to change? One can only hope so, because it's hard to find something good that's coming out of this. And I mean, I guess part of the issue as well is that many of the aid agencies who would be continuing this work perhaps cannot at this current stage because of health concerns or potentially them being a sort of carrier of coronavirus. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, uh, yes. And well, just an odd or step, uh, Cyclone Harold that took place last week, of course, in, in the Pacific. It's, mm. it's even hard to get to, to get help there, and this is pretty close. So yes, of course. I mean, that said, there are heroic human beings uh, who work in, in places and continue to do work that they do with very poor uh, personal protective equipment, and doubtless that will be continuing, and doubtless we won't hear about those stories, and hopefully some lives are saved as a result of those heroic actions. Mm, absolutely. Um, there's also much discussion about how it is near impossible for people in slums to self-isolate due to overcrowding and large shared rooms. I guess on a similar line to what we were discussing before, do you think that sort of in a post-COVID world, people might see this as an opportunity to change the urban fabric of slums, if that's really a possible development? Um, and would this kind of come from governments or communities or a mix, or what would be the outlook? All of me wants to say yes, but the, the, the history of urbanisation and poverty has been no. I mean, that said, there have been cases, of course, with big epidemics, uh, where slum clearances have happened and sanitation has been put in and it's not hard to think about big shifts to do with um, all kind of waterborne diseases. And that's true. But those are in countries with wealth and countries where wealthier people are at risk uh, that actually shifts 
have happened. And I, I'm sorry to say the story of North London urbanization of poorer people is no one really cares up until the point the land values of those particular areas get high enough that those people are thrown off and uh, markets come in and, and build casinos or hotels or middle income housing. And so I want to say yes, but I, I, it's hard to see how. Mm. Do you think that there, I mean, given that Africa's population is forecast to double by 2050 and much of this growth is expected within slums, do you think or do you see that there could be interest in sort of seeing how we can design slums better or working with slums, recognising that there is a value that slums bring to countries, particularly the informal economy, which is a huge part to many of those countries? No, no, that's absolutely the case. And the most industrious entrepreneurial human beings you'll find anywhere in the world, the 19-year-old woman with four children who works seven days a week and lives in a place where she says a tap with 40 other people and a toilet with 40 other people, that's skill and that's entrepreneurship. And mm. that's the reality. And that's not being romantic or somehow saying it's okay because it's absolutely not okay. Um, that all through the last 50, 60 years, there's been an awful lot of programs called slum upgrading and, and some have worked and some have not. I mean, there have been great, great spectacular improvements in reductions of poverty. It may not seem it, but poverty has gone right down globally. And that's mostly, in fact, due to China's uh, economic growth. So that's fine. Uh, but as economic growth continues in sub-Saharan Africa, and this will take a big dent, the coronavirus will do that. But it's those economic changes that history has shown will make the big difference. Reflecting more on your your career and your experience within disaster uh, engagement, you've been engaged with various efforts of disaster response throughout your time, so following the Haiti earthquake and Typhoon Haiyan. Although this is a different type of disaster in responding to coronavirus, um, what have you observed about being the most effective ways to rebuild and restore and improve communities following these events? Yeah, it's a great question. After the, I, I think there are some emerging shapes that you see in principles. There's the immediate life saving, of course. After that, it's pretty quickly a job of supporting people who know what they want, uh, actually. They're not people aren't helpless victims, but survivors. Um, and so it's helping people, supporting, not providing, not patronizing people on children, as it were, unless, unless they are children. Mm. <laughs> You know what I mean? But it's, um, it's, it's around supporting human beings to reestablish themselves in the best ways. And often that's money, actually, and um, agency, if you like, supporting the determination of people. Uh, ownership, it's bottom up. It's, it's engaging like that. It's not a top down helpless victim scenario, as I say. Coronavirus, who knows? I mean, we're all in a new game. I mean, although every few decades there are pandemics, by the way, and we forget that there have been a number since 1918 when the Spanish flu uh, caused um 50 million deaths, something like that. So, so that, that there have been lessons, uh, but we do forget them. We're short, we're short, short memory because this is, um, this is a high impact, low frequency event because, and we forget that, you know, we, we're dealing with the, the higher frequency ones. But I think lessons are support human beings. There's a famous phrase in development called whose reality counts. It's not me as the aid provider, but it's actually people themselves, the five year old girl or the 19 year old mother of children they've mentioned or whatever it might be supporting those people and making it better for next time. Absolutely. Well, David, thank you so much for your time and sharing what you're aware of what's going on inside many of the African slums in response to coronavirus. Oh, it's a pleasure. That was David Sanderson, who was the inaugural Judith Nelson Chair at UNSW, speaking about the impact of coronavirus within many of Africa's informal settlements.
And that was Joe Crook's Don't Let Me Down. And now we have our next interview. So, Victoria last year launched an inquiry into homelessness, which is due to be heard in the 17th of November 2020. Submissions are currently open, and we will have a link to that in our rundown if any listeners want to get involved and have their say. But apart from that, many organisations have also chipped in with their recommendations, one of them being Legal Aid. Victoria Legal Aid has worked with over 6,300 Victorians who have identified as being homeless or at risk of homelessness. And we have Joel from the organisation to talk more about the recommendations that they have provided to the Victorian inquiry. Good morning, Joel. Good morning. Great to be with you. Just starting off with my questions, there's a line in the submission you made which says, homelessness is almost always intertwined with people's legal problems. Could I get you to expand on that? What is usually the experience of working with people in positions of housing and security and homelessness? Yeah, so there's a pretty rich literature now about the way in which different kinds of social problems intersect with the legal problems that people experience. And it's, I guess, 
um, a matter of kind of common sense. It's most people's intuition that if you're a person experiencing some sort of profound disadvantage, you're more likely to have um, legal problems. And what we find is that people experiencing homelessness experience additional legal problems over and above what ordinary members of the community do. There are a couple of things behind that. So one is that people who are insecure in their housing or are living on the street are exposed to a whole lot more contact with the law than people who um, have secure housing. So a really obvious example is um, people who are who are sleeping rough or regularly on the street are going to have more contact with police than other people. Um, but the other thing is that obviously a number of large number of people who experience housing insecurity have other problems like substance abuse problems and mental health problems. And those themselves both contribute to legal problems and also sometimes make it more difficult for people to deal with the legal problems they have. And I suppose just touching on that idea of coming into contact more with the justice system and your work at Legal Aid, could you talk about how people who are in this position of homelessness can sometimes be pulled into the justice system and then kind of continued in this, the justice cycle? Yeah, that's well, so that's certainly true, that, um, that that's an experience of many. Uh, we all know that when people are brought into the criminal justice system, one of the things that happens is that they are exposed to an increased risk of escalating through that system and being subject to uh, more and harsher penalties over time. So um, people um, come into contact with police for a, a minor offence, they accumulate fines, maybe they don't pay fines, maybe then a warrant is issued and they're brought into court um, and then they are caught up in that criminal justice cycle and that can have a whole lot of compounding effects in somebody's life as you can imagine. And also talking about like for example the legal system is very expensive and can be uh, again with this cycle can be very become very inaccessible. Could you talk about that with uh, the idea of homelessness or people who are experiencing homelessness accessing these services? Look that's a, a real problem. We have a number of um, therapeutic courts now. We have um, some programs in the justice system which are designed uh, to deal with people's underlying social problems which contribute to their legal problems. Uh, but if you are in unstable accommodation, if you're hard to contact, it can be harder to engage you in those programs. And so it can be harder to turn those problems around. And so this is why one of the things that we have said in our submission to the parliamentary inquiry is that we need to ensure that there is sufficient uh, public and community housing for people uh, so that people have a stable place to live because that will open up options for them when it comes to the sorts of dispositions that we want to see in our justice system, the sort mm -hmm. of dispositions which will help people resolve those problems. And I mean, thanks, Joel, for bringing up the recommendations, because uh, reading through them, they really do suggest that we need to move from crisis measures and crisis intervention to more preventative measures. Could you kind of explain how our current crisis approach operates and why it's not working or why it's so inadequate? Sure. Uh, look, in a range of areas, I think we see a kind of crisis driven approach 
uh, and it impacts people experiencing homelessness, certainly. Um, we have uh, public housing stock, which I think on any view doesn't come close to meeting the need in terms of people uh, who are in unstable situation in terms of their housing. So we, we don't have sufficient housing um, to put people in accommodation for the long term. They cycle through crisis accommodation services and uh, it becomes very difficult for them to then stabilise their life. You know, in the same way in the mental health system, you know, we have a, a mental health system which is skewed towards providing crisis assistance for people uh, and not dealing with their long-term underlying problems and needs. And again, as you can imagine, these things tend to intersect. Absolutely. And I mean, talking about, for example, the first recommendation, which is directly calling for safe, stable and affordable housing. Housing is the fundamental need. And I mean, when you don't have it, everything else gets thrown out of balance. Could you talk about how by securing that fundamental base, we're able to create a much better service? Yeah. So as I was indicating earlier, I I think that stable accommodation is often an essential precondition to people regularly accessing the services they need to resolve other problems. So whether it's somebody who has, let's say, bail conditions, which um, require them to regularly engage with services, or uh, whether it's a person who um, is at risk of being um, hospitalised involuntarily uh, because of mental health problems, uh, if their accommodation becomes unstable, we can we, we see in our work the way in which uh, unstable accommodation tends to jeopardise what would otherwise be um, pathways to recovery for people mm. from some of those other problems that they're experiencing. And I mean, this is, there's been a bit of an argument about public housing. I mean, uh, the Andrews government's had a bit of a different approach to it within providing housing and then taking down public housing. Do you think, why do you think it's ultimately the government's responsibility to increase public housing and not, I don't know, look for alternative options for these people? Well, I I mean, I think the, the basic point that we would make is that it makes good public policy sense to mm. put people in stable long-term accommodation. It's going to mean your mental health services, um, your justice system, your um, uh, your social welfare system generally is going to operate in a much better and more efficient way because people are not uh, living lives which are attended by the uncertainty that mm. they would otherwise experience in terms of accommodation. And so... It is, in the end, to everyone's benefit, including the state government's benefit, to make sure that we minimise housing instability, that we we minimise homelessness, because the downstream effects of that are going to be problematic for everyone in the community. They're going to be expensive and difficult to resolve. And, of course, horrible for the people experiencing uh, that insecurity. Um, Just covering off the final recommendations, uh, I mean, Legal Aid's also called for prevention for people entering the justice system because of homelessness and poverty, uh, providing illegal and services systems that prevent evictions in homelessness, better ways to prevent and respond to homelessness in the child protection system in particular, a strengthened social safety net and tackle discrimination um, of a cause and consequences of homelessness. I mean, they're very big, broad ideas. What do you think, um, or why has Legal Aid left these 
kind of points is quite general or quite large focused. Is that hopefully that the government will be able to swoop in with policy to surround it? Or, yeah, could, could you explain just the recommendations for me a bit more? Yeah, sure. Well, when I think what that submission recognises and what those recommendations recognise is that um, homelessness and housing instability, these are not simple problems. They're very complex problems and they interact with the way in which our society deals with mental health issues, the way in which we administer our child protection system, the way in which we uh, administer our anti-discrimination laws, all of these and many other systems that operate in our um, society impact on homelessness. So you're right, it's not a simple fix. But that mm. said, there are some some straightforward nuts and bolts things that can be done uh, which will avoid um, needless unfair impact on people experiencing homelessness. A really good example of something that that is happening is the abolition of the offence of public drunkenness. Many of Mm. your listeners will have followed the Tanya Day inquest, which touched on on this issue. But that is a good example of one way in which we can make a sensible nuts and bolts technical reform, which makes the system better. So there are some big picture ideas in Mm -hmm. there, um, but there are certainly some simple and practical and technical things we can do to make life better for people experiencing homelessness. Fantastic. And I wanted to conclude on the idea. Um, what do you think are the, some of the misconceptions around homelessness or housing insecurity? Because, I mean, it, we are given through kind of our mainstream media very much the caricature of someone who is doing it tough on the streets. But there are so many other experiences of housing insecurity. And, of course, I imagine legal aid must work with clients who are presenting, you know, in the first stages of housing security, you know, episodic or that sort of stuff. And then you also deal with clients who have undergone chronic homelessness um, and that that range of experience. So what are the misconceptions do you think that are potentially getting in the way of us providing a solution to this issue? Well, I think, I mean, one of the, um, one of the misconceptions is one you've just touched on, which is that um, I think there is a, a perception, um, at least in some quarters of the community, that homelessness is just the person sleeping rough and uh, that housing instability is in itself um, uh, something which causes real hardship. Uh, what we see in our work is, as I've indicated, that that um, housing instability can, can lead to um, more extreme forms of disadvantage. And so what, that misconception stands in the way of us providing early intervention to head off those problems of the past. So I think that is one key thing uh, that we need to change public perception about. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Joel, for joining us today and giving us a little bit more discussion. Of course, we can head to uh, Victoria Legal Aid or the government submission to, to, read, to read the submission. Thanks so much. You're listening to 3CR. That was Joel from Legal Aid Victoria reporting about their recommendation to the current homeless inquiry before the Vic government. Joel brought up after the interview just a few interesting points. The first one was, of course, the fact that poor people are always bumping into sharp legal things. And Joel spoke of this within the context of the fact that the system operates and discriminates and is a lot more um, criminalising to the issues that a lot of people who are disadvantaged or marginalised are going through. This is obviously an obvious thing that we we cover here at 3CR. Uh, But Joel really wanted to reiterate that basically 
the core legal questions reflects the fact that the fix is ultimately not a win in court, it's a fix of the underlying problems. And that just reiterates the preventative recommendations that legal aid uh, gave to the inquiry. So yeah, I just wanted to finish off with those thoughts and we'll now get into a song before we get into tram thoughts.
While in isolation, I have taken to getting back into my love of film photography. Um, I actually acquired my hobby of collecting film cameras while basing my studio art year 12 final folio on film photography production. I honestly haven't looked at film cameras for my film cameras for maybe like a few years, except for the exception of disposable cameras. Um, but before studio art and discovering film photography, I knew nothing about these cameras or film as digital was all the range back then even and smartphone imagery, imagery was a new tool of choice. The last two years especially, I'm not sure whether you both can say the same, but I've noticed people really getting back into film cameras, most noticeably disposable cameras, but even so far as to actually purchasing film cameras and film for their own leisure and enjoyment. Uh, so for my tram thought, I wondered, while iPhone camera quality, imagery and digital cameras are now the mainstream with being so good at what they do, <laughs> does film photography actually have a place at all in our future? And if so, how big of a place does it actually have? So first off, I'll start by asking you guys, have you noticed anywhere the rise or use of film photography? Yeah, so um, it was, we went away to Lawn over last November and my friend actually took a proper film camera and, I mean, it meant he only had 20 shots, so he was like, two shots per day. <laughs> but there was a beautiful, I don't know, this is going to sound very pretentious and very hipstery, but there was a beautiful like little routine he'd do of really setting up his shot, really thinking about the lighting, the angles, and then taking it. And the images he did take are some of the most beautiful from our trip. I mean, digital makes it very easy to like snap away, right? but his was so well focused and thought out. And like, of course, I also think that like the film quality, sometimes it's better. Like it's, I don't know. I really love the texture that comes out of images with film cameras. So that was definitely one place where I interacted with it. And I do know that like, I think it is a rising emerging trend. Like it's kind of like bring back, you know, the old retro kind of vibes. Uh, so yeah, I've definitely seen that within my friendship group at least and popular media, I suppose. Yeah, I kind of wonder whether the rise is either due to a kind of, a, like, for me, at least for my age growing up, when I look back at old family photos, they're on film. So there's a sense of nostalgia of that's how photography used to be and that's not what it is now. 
So part of me wonders whether the appeal for film photography is it's kind of something that you're brought up with. Um, but the second thing is I think actually just generally um, the, the nature of film photography being analog, it has a graininess and a, an imp imperfection to it. And it's the same with like when you compare digital art to canvas art, the canvas art always looks better because that sort of, there's that sense of imperfection or things not so sort of precise. Um, and so I feel like it's a combination of the two for me about why it's become more popular is that there is something beautiful about something that's non-precise that you do get with film photography. But having said that, I've also seen it popping more in, um, in TV shows. So there's, there's a few TV shows that I watch where each season's kind of in a different setting. And there's one season that was set in the sort of 1950s. And so they decided for that season to film it on old film rather than on a digital uh, film camera. And so it sort of, it's to sort of herald you back to that era of what film photography used to be like. Definitely. And I think it's a combination of everything both of you said. Um, for me, as I've said, my friends have really begun using film cameras more either disposable or purchasing their own, which aren't actually purchasing your own does quite, it does cost quite a lot of money because it's not as common as it was a few decades ago. This uh, did bring my train of thought back to, is it just a hipster sort of phase? Like, so, like say maybe an argument can be made the same as record players and the rise in popularity with those and people accumulating those these days, you know, like when we have this sort of new form of technology activating Spotify or whatever music platform you're using or YouTube or anything like that, but why are people so inclined to, you know, go back to record players? For me, as I've said, um, my friends have been doing, have been hopping onto this bandwagon for whatever the reason that may be. And I think it's amazing. I have too also. Um, but photographers too, like you said, Rob, and filmographers are reverting back to the creativity of film cameras as a mediocre photographer. It's exciting for me going through the process of capturing memories to be developed from music festivals or parties or dinner events. And like you said, Adwin, it's sort of like this novelty of having a limit of how many images you can actually take. So it's like, no, like you're on an iPhone, they're just like, honestly, like when I have something to take a photo of, I take like 50 shots, you know? Um, but it has to be so precise and fine-tuned when you take that 20-film um, shot with you, you know. Um, it brings back more of an appreciative feeling when taking and developing my own film photography rather than smartphone Im images I snap on average almost every single day for whatever reason that may be. Artistically, film photography also gives out an obviously a very authentic aesthetic. Um, Rob, you were talking about this. Often this is hard to achieve with digital imagery. There is a big difference between a, how a film photograph is formed versus how a digital image is formed. The difference being that film or photographic paper forms images by organic grains forming through light and chemical techniques, and that digital imagery is created by the ordering of pixels on screen. So there is a very noticeable difference between the two, and depending on the context or content of what an artist, either mediocre or professional, <laughs> wants to achieve um, through either, either, either form, Social media filters, including Instagram editing tools, are made to make smartphone images look as if they were taken on a film camera. And there's a big rise on this in social media. I don't know whether you can say the same, whether you've come across that. But I know for me, I actually, if I ever upload an image onto any platform, I always go to VizCoCam, which has filters based on film filters. Um, the pros of this are not having to dedicate time and effort to developing your own um, but it brings back the idea of, of the fun of taking and developing your own. 
by transforming a digital image into an antique lookalike of the old days of a film camera. Have either of you found yourselves using any of these editing tools or filters to make an image more look like a film photograph? Yeah, well, I just wanted to say, um, you made a point a little bit earlier, I just want to quickly make a thing on. Um, I do think this sort of reversion back to analogue and back to more expensive film techniques is in of itself a bit of a privileged thing. Just yeah. just a little one, but it's like, oh, yeah. it is, it's very much like vinyls. It's like, who who can afford to do that sustainably? Uh, so that's one thing I think of, like, with people adopting it and the people who are making it a bit of a trend, like, especially when I see it in indie or maybe alternative media, you know, films yeah. and stuff like that, you know, the again, that hipster taking the photo on the old camera. Yeah. It's kind of like it is pushing still that consumption culture and that, and it's a very, very, um, pricey consumption culture. Oh, it is. I honestly, I've got, I have a collection now because I worked so hard, like say working as a casual employee when I was in high school, I saved all my money for my cameras and it took me months, like months upon months upon months, you know, and like I had no other expenses back then, Mm. but it's ridiculous how much these are. And I think the accessibility for these features is so much easier with editing apps and custom thing on iPhones. Absolutely. So yeah. definitely on the idea of like filters. I mean, I've seen that. I've used that. It definitely achieved something in a very, very cheaper, <laughs> much more cheaper way. Yeah, Do you sure. still get the same effect and same beauty? Potentially not. But like, I mm. suppose that's the, that's the payoff. Mm. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, for me, I found it's like, I used to be kind of like anti-filters because I'm like, I feel like whatever that comes out of the camera, digital or analog should be what the photo is. Mm. I think over time, I've come to appreciate actually like filters and editing and actually being more experimental with that because it's kind of like with every era of art, people like there's always this kind of romanticism of the sort of the tortured soul spending all the time in the, in the the black room or wherever creating or developing the film or, you know, painting the painting. Mm -hmm. But in a sense, I feel like that it's kind of a waste of not embracing all the, the technology that there is to kind of create more interesting photography today, potentially. And so I guess all these kind of like these apps enable more people to do that more accessibly without having to have, you know, excessive uh, equipment. And so I quite like that as a trend now. Um, but I don't know, I think it does make you see the world differently or it lets people convey how they see the world in different ways, which I always find interesting. Definitely. And I think this is, you guys, you both obviously touched on this topic already, but just for a final comment, do you think that film cameras have a place in this technological age? Do you think that they will continue to have an, uh, a place here or do you think it'll just be a fad of people getting on, jumping onto the bandwagon of getting a film camera and do you think it will phase out and we'll just continue to use those for us in general? I think it will because, I mean, if you make a comparison to, like, CDs. Hmm. You don't see people buying CDs, but you see people buying records, and that's because hmm. records sort of there's a tonal quality associated with it. And I think it's the same with with analog cameras. Is that there's kind of there's a it, yes, there's sort of like a few steps back in technology, but there is a quality associated with them. Hmm. Um, I do imagine they would become more expensive over time as less and less people use them. But I do think they do always have a place. I think there is something sort of nice about a film camera. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go with the romantic vision here of like I actually really love resorting back to analog things because I do think they capture as Rob's just said uh, uh, something that we can't with digital um and the constant reproduction. So I'd actually really love to see us 
move back to more predominantly using kind of film mm. to tell you the truth because I like I like the aesthetic and the effect that it can create um mm. so, and I do think they're going to stick around because I think there is something that is warm about them and attracts people to them so I think they're popular enough to stick around even if it is fashionable rather than you know normal or convenient or accessible um also I was going to say we've been talking about photography and stuff like that but I'd really love to see film analog retained in like films and stuff like that like you mm. can't do a western without looking at like <laughs> film conventions and film analog conventions see so, i had i actually had this debate with my partner the other day and he oh. does not agree i agree with you but he does not agree with me and he says he cannot stand that sort of that i i don't i was almost like wow is this this is the end but the um end. No, <laughs> i i mean it's interesting that you were saying that because mm. i think there are very two predominant schools of thought it's like out with the old but also appreciate the old so yeah i think i think as rob said there's like there's enough value in it that it it's going to stick around on its merit i think mm. whether that think so to, to what to what extent what accessibility but like i don't know there's just something so warm about the fo- photos i really yeah. do love them and I, I i agree with you rob like i think there's nostalgia in there but i think there is um it's real cool. yeah there's yeah. there is real quality and like yeah mm. Just looking at some of the the film photos, uh, there's this photographer back in the 1920s who was doing, 1930s, 20s, um, doing film photography of uh, this woman with black lace in front of the camera and just Mm. the depth and the lighting and stuff like that. I don't think you could achieve on digital camera. Like I was, I was, I remember going to that and just being like mind blown through just some of the effects that they were able to create. Anyway. That's my two cents. <laughs> no, thank you. So with that, I think that wraps up our charm thoughts for today. Um, we'll be jumping into our next interview. Join me, Aya Cry with Ubuntu Voices. Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yen yeah, Pass Iran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Like an apple tree wanting to live with a purpose. Skin 